You're listening to the Skylight Books Podcast. We're an independent, general interest bookstore putting great reads in the hands of people in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. Hosted by resident Skylighters, we're here to bring you new and exciting author conversations, group reads, and bookseller chats. Happy listening. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome back to the Skylight Books Podcast. I'm your host, Nat, and today we are so excited to welcome Kim Kelly to talk about her new book, Fight Like Hell, The Untold History of American Labor. Kim Kelly is an independent journalist, author, and organizer based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. She has been a labor columnist for Teen Vogue since 2018, and her writing on labor, class, politics, and culture have appeared in The New Republic, The Washington Post, The New York Times, The Baffler, The Nation, the Columbia Journalism Review, and Esquire. She's also worked as a video correspondent for More Perfect Union, The Real News Network, and Means TV. Previously, she was the heavy metal editor at Vice's Noisy and a leader in the Vice Union. She is a member of the Industrial Workers of the World's Freelance Journalists Union and elected councilperson for the Writers Guild of America East. Thanks so much for being here, Kim. Thanks for having me. I'm wanting to talk about my little book. Yes, I'm so excited. Do you want to start us off by reading us a little a little snippet to get us in the fighting spirit? Yeah, I got a little snippet. I've got I'm still getting used to this whole reading thing. So hopefully <laughs> I don't screw it up. Um, this little section is from chapter, I think chapter three. Um, and it's about a woman named Ola Delight Smith and the battle to organize the South. This woman's personality is disgusting. Ola Delight Smith did not make a very good impression on the Fulton Bag and Cotton Mill Company operative being paid to surveil the July 14th, 1914 union meeting at which she was speaking. Smith was a a railroad telegrapher by trade who had spent her childhood bouncing around the South before settling in Atlanta as an adult. She was no stranger to labor unrest and was certainly no shrinking violet. A feminist and advocate for working class women, Smith had made her name as a labor columnist for the Journal of Labor and joined her first union, the Commercial Telegraphers Union of America, in 1904. Three years later, after she moved to Atlanta, she became involved in the 1907 Western Union Telegrapher strike, earning her a blacklisting from the company until the practice was banned almost 30 years later. Unable to depend on her sporadically employed husband, Smith worked odd jobs and secretarial work in real estate to make ends meet. And she threw herself into organizing, crusading against Georgia's child labor laws and championing economic independence for white women. Smith's writing was ahead of its time for a turn-of-the-century white progressive organizer, but like many labor leaders of her era, Smith's version of labor solidarity was myopic and far from inclusive or intersectional. Her approach included typical progressive-era hand-wringing over moral depravity and sex work that was tainted with racism, native nativism, bigotry, and ambivalence toward the plight of Black workers and immigrant workers. Her focus was on white workers, and more specifically, white women. That focus, coupled with her Southern location, helps explain how this middle-class railroad telegrapher ended up involved in a cotton mill strike in Georgia. In 1914, the city of Atlanta had undergone a significant demographic shakeup. White agricultural workers poured in from surrounding rural areas, displacing Black laborers, stoking racial tension, and forcing the two groups to compete against one another for industrial jobs. The the Fulton Bag and Cotton Mill had seen its first strike in 1885 over wages. Then in 1897, 200 white women and girls at the mill struck to protest the hiring of 25 black women. By the time a third strike unfolded, the mill's workforce was still primarily white, 
and the situation had become far more dire. These mill workers faced the same wretched conditions that plagued their northern counterparts in Lowell and New York City, with the addition of southern heat, an especially nasty boss, and an even nastier strain of racism underpinning life in the factory. In addition to the usual indignities of low wages and poor working conditions, mill owner Oscar Elsis was also a big fan of surveillance. He hired private spies to keep watch over his employees on the clock and off. He was also a slumlord. The workers were paid pennies, but often refused to take advantage of the shoddy company housing that was offered due to its unspeakable conditions. He would intentionally stoke racial tensions by forcing black workers to evict white families from company housing, amplifying resentments and neutering any nascent workplace solidarity. For the poor white and black workers employed there, men, women, and children included, escape must have felt impossible. So when the AFL affiliated United Textile Workers came calling, the workers of Fulton Bag welcomed them with open arms. It would be the first real attempt of the 20th century to unionize a workplace in the South. And unsurprisingly, management was not on board. Pro-union workers were fired, and the conflict spilled over into the streets on May 14, 1914, when more than 900 workers, two-thirds of them women, and 130 of them children as young as 16, walked off the job. Elsis, a staunchly anti-union dandy, a contemporary report described him as assuming an air of dignity that would put a turkey gobbler to shame evicted 85 striking families as punishment, but the workers refused to waver. As the strike picked up steam, the UTW hired Ola Delight Smith as a paid organizer. The gig meant that she could support herself financially and devote herself fully to the work of labor organizing, an almost unheard of luxury for a woman in her position. Smith was new to the textile industry, but her enthusiasm helped fill the gaps, and her years in the media had taught her how to harness the power of publicity. She surreptitiously photographed striking workers, including child laborers, their struggling families, and the heartless company men skulking at the margins, and hung up their photos in storefronts around town. By embracing this new technology, she was able to put a human face on the workers' struggle and drum up pub public sympathy as the strike dragged on, and by extension, created a robust historical record for future historians and labor nerds to ponder. Smith knew she was onto something with her media strategy and didn't stop there. She organized a motion picture crew to film the picket lines and held screenings in a local theater to boost morale. She pitched her images to tug at the public's heartstrings. One photo of an emaciated 10-year-old mill boy named Milton Denali was made into postcards and sent around the country. Once it caught wind of it, the company fired Milton, who apparently had a hard time focusing on his work, perhaps because he was a malnourished 10-year-old boy who had earned a grand total of 24 cents for two weeks of work for mischief. Smith also made a habit of documenting the undercover agents and spies who'd been brought in to weaken the strike and report on union meetings, and saw several of her cameras smashed as a result. Thugs and spotters were ever around me, she wrote, but she took heart in her success stirring up public support. As the weeks went on, Fulton Bag trained its sights on Smith and made her the target of a virulent smear campaign. The company's men used surveillance, blackmail, intimidation, and entrapment to sully her character by insinuating that Smith was promiscuous at the time, a catastrophic accusation to throw at a married woman, and cast the strike in a negative light. It got so bad that her absentee husband, Edgar, reappeared and, after a little monetary persuasion, signed it with the company. A Fulton Mills lawyer even filed his petition for divorce. Smith countersued for cruelty and neglect, but the judge ultimately sided with her husband. 
The UTW buckled under the assault and, seeking to cut its losses, fired her on November 18, 1914. Workers stood up for Smith, knowing Fulton Mill's tactics all too well, but their protestations were to no avail. With one of its lead organizers gone, the strike faltered, and by May 19th, it was over. The union had made other glaring missteps beyond firing Smith, including engaging in divisive racist rhetoric of its own, fracturing support and ceding to the will of its hungry strikers. However, the strike marked a significant moment in Southern industrial labor history and planted seeds for rebellions to come. As for Smith, following her expulsion, she decamped to Texas then Oregon, where she remarried, got more telegrapher jobs, and took up the pro-union cause wherever she laid her head. Despite her shoddy treatment back in Atlanta, she never lost faith, even, be even becoming known as the first lady of Oregon labor by the time she passed away in 1958. I have cast my bread on the waters all through my half century in the labor movement, she wrote before her death. It has returned to me tenfold. That's Ola Delight Smith, <laughs> a problematic <laughs> fave. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. And it got me thinking about uh, how I'd like to get you to kind of open up this project a little bit for us. And it may seem like a weird question, but did you start at the beginning when you were <laughs> researching or were there or were there people that whose work you were familiar with or stories that you had heard in your organizing work and all of the work that you've done in the labor movement and you kind of started with their stories and then saw the foundations that they were built upon or did you start at the end and move backwards well not the end obviously because we're nowhere near finished <laughs> but uh our current moment and move back from there what was the process of research for this book like yeah so when it came down to figuring out my outline and my like game plan I, I came to it with a bunch of you know previous knowledge that I'd accrued through through being a big old nerd and being involved in the movement <laughs> And you know, like the, one of the first things I did once I like signed the contract, whoever knew I was going to do this, was go on various used book websites and go buck wild, just ordering yeah. every book I could think of. Yeah. <laughs> um, when it came down to actually, and I I mapped things out and I, I thought about articles I'd written and other research I'd done before, and, and sort of I had this amorphous kind of game plan in my head. But when it came to down to actually writing, I went chapter by chapter. And since I'm a journalist, I'm a freelancer, I'm used to filing. So every time I finish a chapter, I would just send it to my editor and then start doing uh -huh. the next one. <laughs> so I just did that. Like, uh, And some chapters were easier than others. Some were easier to research because they were more you know, fully documented. There were more uh, like historians and academics had put that work in and you know uncovered these stories and documented them for you know journalists and people like me to come in later yeah. and try to synthesize and analyze. But some were, some were a lot harder because the, you know, <laughs> I, can't, I would tell my editor, like, look, this, this chapter is taking a little bit longer because a lot of these people aren't dead yet. A lot of the people yeah. in the book are, in, you know, they're past or they're not really around to talk to. But especially when it came to chapters like uh, the disabled workers or the sex workers, the incarcerated workers, those are they're still fairly recent movements. And so mm -hmm. some of those OGs are like still around. Or some of the people I wanted to talk to were in a position where it was a lot more difficult to get in touch because you can't exactly pick up the phone and call your buddy in Rikers unless you yeah. have the right time. So, <laughs> yeah, it was, you know, I'm not an academic by any stretch of the imagination. And I'm, I kind of just approached it the way I approach everything. I was like, okay, what do I know? What do I want to know? 
Where can I mm-hmm. find it? Who can I call? And how can I pull all this together and make it legible and interesting to somebody who is nowhere near as big of a nerd about this stuff but as I am? Yeah. And what to that end, like, you know, there's so much knowledge you say you already had from being obsessed with this movement and having all of these uh, experiences so far. When did you, did someone approach you or when did you decide that you wanted to sort of create this document for, for everybody to look back on? We've already mentioned multiple times and you mentioned in the passage that you read, the importance of documenting these occurrences and these movements, because also like in the passage you read and what you've just said that the ones that don't get written down, you have to go around and track these people down or hope that someone maybe says something that someone can then latch onto and remember, or we have like an oral tradition. And so what made you decide that this was like, this was what you needed to do right now during this big wave of the movement? Yeah. I mean, it's been, I was just talking to my agent earlier. He's like, yeah, you know, it's been two years since we we signed those papers. You've been working on this for two years. I'm like, wow, yeah. it's been a wild two years. <laughs> like when I first sat down and started writing it, my only goal in terms of timing was I want this to come out in time for May Day. May Day. And yeah, yeah which I pulled off with a help from a little extension, <laughs> but in terms of all of like everything that's happened the past couple of years in terms of like public support for unions growing and this idea of the great resignation, the tight labor market, strike Tober, strike Vember, Amazon, Starbucks, all of these different things that are happening in the movement and really injecting a real sense of optimism and energy into a movement that's kind of been on the back foot for pretty much longer than I've been alive. Like, yeah. I couldn't have picked a better time, but in the beginning, when I sat down, I was like, okay, I want to write a book. I feel like I'm at that point in my career, in my life or whatever. Like I should try and pull this off. Like a bunch of my friends are doing it. I've always wanted to do it. Let me try and do it. And it's funny because I first like met and started working with my agent years ago when I was still working at Vice as the heavy metal editor. And my first book then was supposed to be about heavy metal. But as time went on and I, you know, we unionized at Vice and I became super involved in that. And that kind of labor kind of took over my life. And then after I got laid off, I started writing more about it. And then that kind of took over my career. I was like, okay, well, I think the heavy metal book will have to wait. I think now is the time to write, really write the labor book that I've been wanting to read because I've read a whole lot of them, a lot of trade books. I read a bunch of academic books and there's so much. And in both types of books and in articles and in newspapers and just in oral histories, like there's so much out there. And I was always so excited to to find something cool or find someone interesting, but it was all kind of scattered, you know, like there are a lot of really brilliant authors who have done, who have written books on specific eras, specific types of work or specific events. But I wanted to try and pull a lot of different things together in kind of a, like a tasting menu, <laughs> like to show like, And to show all the, it was a big goal of mine to show all the different intersections between these different struggles and show even ones that have been documented a little more like the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. Like I wanted to try and pull out as much as I could about, you know, that women themselves, about Claire Lemlich's life, like find her quotes, find the things she was saying and like who she was as a Ukrainian Jewish immigrant. Like she wasn't just this historic person. She was an organizer who got her ribs cracked cracked by the cops like I wanted to find the human pieces because I'm much better at telling stories and kind of finding a more 
personal connection with people than I am in like dealing with data or like going through archives. Like Mm -hmm. some people are really good at that and God bless them because I wouldn't be able to do this without them. But I hope that I'm able to kind of serve as a little bit of a megaphone and, Mm -hmm. and offer people an accessible entry into this history. And so hopefully they will continue to keep digging after they put this book down and are like, okay, well, what else, what else happened? Who else is out there? Like it's a, you know, it's like the the intro class in college. Like hopefully you'll sign up for the advanced courses, but you gotta, you gotta hook them in somehow. Yeah. And it's a jumping off point, which for something like this, especially with all of, like you said, all of the articles, all of the other books and all of the talk about the labor movement right now and the great resignation and all of these things, it's extremely intimidating to try and jump into. Um, like if you're trying to figure out how to organize or you're interested in organizing, which so many more people are now, um, like it would be really difficult to look at one group's movement from beginning to end and then try and figure out not necessarily how to replicate it, but how to do it to fit what you're trying to do. Yeah. How do I fit? And if the only labor history that you encounter, like if you're not a person who is involved in the movement, or even if you are, if you're someone who doesn't spend a lot of time thinking about this stuff or studying it academically or really like becoming a giant nerd about it, you're probably not going to necessarily know that much about things outside of like, oh, the auto workers in Detroit, like that was a thing. And like Cesar Chavez and there's something with a triangle factory. Like it's not like people in most schools are really getting a robust labor education. I sure didn't. I grew up in the middle of nowhere and it's amazing. I made it out of there knowing <laughs> how to read. So <laughs> yeah, I think it's um it's really important to make these stories accessible and to put like package it in a way that is engaging and approachable and still informative and like researched and properly cited, but that is fun to read. Like I wanted to write something that people could read on the bus or stick in mm-hmm. their backpack on the way their way to a protest. Like that's my audience like people that are interested but don't really know where to start and don't know where they fit in my whole goal with with this book is to show people exactly where they fit in no matter what their identity is or where they're coming from like someone just like you has pulled this shit off before and there's no reason why you can't try to and sorry (laughs) oh no you can swear as much as you want you know (laughs) thank god (laughs) had my grown-up voice on all day (laughs) yeah no you can swear as much as you want don't hold back um so I I was I wanted to get your sort of like I'm sure you have talked about this a lot but looking forward from our like our very recent past and a little bit further back in the time that this book covers what are you hopeful about with this wave that's kind of happening right now. So what, like you said, you've been working on the book for a few years and then all of these things started happening in the midst of that too, with Starbucks and Amazon and all of these different retail workers and all kinds of industries who are just saying enough and taking a stand for like their health and lives and livelihoods. And there's something so like a match has been lit it's been simmering like you said on the back foot for so long and for so many reasons it has really kind of just exploded and we're seeing it everywhere and it's so um it's so intoxicating truly oh yeah it's a good time to be a labor nerd I will say that yeah (laughs) (laughs) so 
I'd love to hear like with all of the research that you've done and like a good chunk of the back of this book is notes and resources for all of those like jumping off points of fight like hell to like go and look into more after the fact. So as like with all of the research that you've done and all of the stories that you've heard and the things that you've seen, what makes you hopeful about right now? I'm so interested in seeing the response to specifically the Amazon labor union win, right? There, I think there's this very kind of shocked response because these, these workers who working class, black and brown, young, multilingual, multicultural workers in a warehouse in Staten Island, they managed to pull off something that no other established union with all of its history and resources and legal support has. Like they won a union at Amazon and they did that by using very old tactics like there's a lot of the the tenor of the coverage is like well, I don't know how they I guess they just talk to each other amazing <laughs> it's like well yeah we've been out here doing that since like the beginning <laughs> like that's how it all started like direct worker to worker communication and building community and building relationships and building trust meeting people where they're at finding the common ground I mean that's how you organize anything mm-hmm. right and I think And there's tons of historical examples of folks doing that, particularly marginalized folks doing that outside of this kind of established framework that you're like, quote unquote, supposed to follow, like the file for an election, you do the vote, you go through Mm -hmm. all the the legal channels, and then then your union is official. Like, that is great. That is cool. That is valid. But that's not the only option. Like, that's never been the only option. I mean, think about what the IWW, Industrial Works of the World, have been doing since 1905. Like they're all about solidarity unionism. They don't even try to get federally recognized or recognized by the employer or to bargain contracts. They build power directly on the shop floor and they've been doing that for a really long time. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't like any other tactic or even in the case of, and I'm still thinking about Amazon because that's kind of on everyone's mind. They're kind of the new shot across the bow. But it makes me think of like the 1960s when Dorothy Lee Bolden was organizing the National Domestic Workers Union of America. And that wasn't happening within an established framework because at that point, most established unions were not going out of their way to welcome low-wage Black women workers. And so Dorothy Lee Bolden, who was one of those workers herself, she organized the people she worked with and she rode the bus lines and she visited people at their houses. She connected with people on that human level because she had lived that same struggle and you know, the organization that she pulled together at its height, there are about 10,000 members. And she became a really well-known civil rights activist. Like she made a huge difference and she did it on her own terms. And she did it in a way that really acknowledged and held the experience of the people she was trying to organize. It wasn't someone coming in and saying, okay, this is what we're going to do. It was something, someone turning to the person next to her and saying, okay, what should we do? What do we want to do? And there's, a, there's so many examples of that in the book and just in history in general. But I think that's really instructive and important for people now to be paying attention to, as well as what we're seeing with Starbucks. That effort does have the backing of a major union, SEIU, Workers United. But the one thing that, that you, the parent union has done that is really smart is to kind of just offer resources where they're needed and wanted and then stay the hell out of the way. Like All of this organizing is happening person to person, shop to shop is led by the workers. The workers are out front. They're the ones who are, you know, bearing the brunt with all these unjust firings. And they're also the ones that are feeling that power. Like it's, I think that uh, there are a lot of different ways to skin a cat. There are a lot of different ways to form a union. 
And there are a lot of really cool historical examples that show that you don't have to play by anyone else's rules. You can make Mm -hmm. your own. Well, and because the labor movement happens within so many different industries, the, the stories will all be so different based on the needs of the people working in those industries, which vary like so greatly. And you mentioned something, well, just everything you, you just mentioned about baseline people just talking to each other and, and figuring out what people need. Um, it reminded me cause I recently talked to Daisy Pitkin and, yes, love her. and her we talked great. so much about care and like the power of just giving a shit (laughs) (laughs) for real yeah like (laughs) about people and the like in the cases of Amazon and Starbucks and these like much larger corporations where the people at the top don't give a shit and think that they and they don't think they have no faith in the people working for them either they don't think that those people give a shit about the other people that they're working with. Um, and that's such a misstep on their part, which it's so fascinating to see how a lot of times you can really, like really trace it back to that. Like that if you give people, if you lock people in a room, which is what they're doing with hours on end to talk to each other about what they need and what they want, that's what they're going to figure out what they need and what they want. Yeah. From you that they're not getting (laughs) (laughs) it's like how one of amazon's like most fatal missteps earlier on the campaign was trying to smear and denigrate chris smalls as a leader Mm -hmm. saying all this racist bullshit about him and by doing that they trained the public eye on him and the public eye was like oh here is a really cool charismatic empathetic like handsome man who is clearly in touch with his community and his co-workers and people listen to him and people respect him. This is the guy that you want to turn into a figurehead. Like, <laughs> good job. You did a great job there, pals. Like, why wouldn't people listen to someone like that instead of some dickhead in a suit? Like, yeah, exactly. nobody likes dickheads in suits except other dickheads in suits. <laughs> it just goes to show like there's all these, the, the employer class, the capitalist class, whatever you want to call them, the new oligarchs, they try so hard to sort of pit workers against one another and foster these artificial divides and make people think that some workers are worth more than others, some are more valid than others. And there's so much overlap in our material conditions, even if a day to, someone's day-to-day workplace or work life looks different. Like the two current actions that I've let myself follow because I've been you know, in book world, but the past year I've also been covering the coal miner strike in Brookwood, Alabama mm-hmm. that's been going, is entering its second year. And those folks, yes, they have a specific experience, a specific set of asks, but ultimately they're just asking to be paid decent, to be safe on the job, to be treated with basic respect and to get what they deserve. Meanwhile, in North Hollywood right now, there's about two dozen members of Strippers United who are out there on the picket lines every night who also have grievances with their employers, who also have issues unique to their workplace, but they're also just trying to get decent wages, a safe workplace, some respect on the job. It's the same thing. Like, a, a, you know, a stripper's life and a coal miner's life might look a lot different, but as workers, as pe- members of the working class, as people who sell their labor in exchange for money to buy basic necessities, it's all kind of the same. Like there's so many more of us than there are of them 
you know, that the bad guys at the top that really, you know, it's something that shows up, I think, throughout the book. And just in general, anyone's paying attention right now, like solidarity really is our, our greatest weapon. And the more we can embrace that, the more we can embrace one another, the easier it is, the easier it's going to be to finally win the class war. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. The, the idea of finally winning the class war being like, you know how there's all these things people say, like not in my lifetime, like I'm, I'm excited for that to happen. It will not happen in my lifetime. This is something that I like the amount of solidarity that is really just rippling through so many like areas. Do you think that's something that could happen in our lifetime? <laughs> Probably not mine. I'm 34, but <laughs> it also depends on what that looks like. Like what I think uh, pretty much anybody who has uttered the words class war with any degree of seriousness has a very specific vision for what that would look yeah. like, for what yeah. victory would look like. I mean, I will say, I feel like we're getting closer to winning some pretty important battles and -hmm. helping to set the stage for the next generation to get even closer. I think it's going to probably take more than a couple really exciting union victories to hasten the downfall of capitalism. But if it can get people talking about it and if it can get, you know, the new Gilded Age tech oligarchs shaking in their Armani shoes about it, then that's a win. I'm down for that. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, maybe, well, and that's, maybe a 16 year old kid listening to this will, will hear this and be like, oh, but I have some ideas. I, <laughs> maybe yeah, they'll get I've got there. some ideas. And that's that's where we can go. But you you mentioned you made a very good point, which is that um, like so many of. I think a lot of like major downfalls in history may have happened because people were focused on the war and not those battles. Um, and so yeah, if someone is devoting their their work and their life to trying to win the class war, but steps at a time, like you said, building it up for the next generation to come through and keep fighting. Um, and I had someone who was asking me about the union that our bookstore started recently. And yeah, um, and like just kind of asked me how it happened and to explain it a little bit. And I explained a few things and specifically that like at the top of our mission statement was for past, present and future employees. And it is not, and my friend said, oh, so it really is a selfless act, isn't it? It kind and of said, is. In, in a lot of ways it is because we, we also had like a ton of staff who were ready to leave and had other opportunities, but stuck it out so they could sign the contract until like that happened. And then went on to the things that were calling them and but they stuck around for that so that the people who were still there and the people who would come after would be able to benefit from it and that's what happened when I was at Vice too same thing I was I wanted to quit way before a second contract but yeah I knew that I I wanted to be part of that and make things better so even if people if I wasn't gonna get to experience any of the benefits or any of the raises Mm -hmm. then the next generation of people behind me would and they might even need it more than I do and it's like you know it's sometimes it's just worth it that feeling of knowing that you've done something that will actually help people like it's just in a really material enduring way not just Mm -hmm. like you know buying somebody a sandwich it's like I was part of something that will make people's lives better and that's you know, that's a precious feeling. Yeah, it really is. And it's, it, like, it fires you up every time, too. Like, 
anytime you you read the stories or you talk to people about it and then people ask you about organizing and it's been like such a whirlwind to kind of join this movement and become like have my ears open to it more and see more that's happening but also the fact that so much more is out in the open and all of these like fights have so much more of a spotlight on them now so wild, right? it's, it's wild cool. <laughs> it's so cool five years ago it wasn't like that when I started writing about yeah it. <laughs> and so and thank God. <laughs> I know right because now now it's something that everybody wants to talk about and hopefully the the purity and the fight of that stays like central to it. I don't think that there's any way to, um, to like taint that, the interest in it. Like, I'd hope not that it's too. Yeah. Media and politicians can say whatever they want and they will. And we do, but that doesn't matter. Doesn't this, that doesn't matter at the end of the day. And like, you know, the victors write history, the the victors, you know, it's, it all comes down to how the people actually doing the work feel about it. You know, like it's supportive headlines and op-eds, like those are nice. Having like a cool politician stop by your rally, that feels good. But like getting the work done and having that real impact and either getting it in writing or building enough power where the boss is too scared to fuck with you. Like mm-hmm. that's the kind of thing that you can't take away. And no, no headline in the world can replicate that feeling of looking at your coworker and being like, yo, we did it. We did it. <laughs> And so for that, maybe six, six-year-old, that next generation of people that are going to come after us, what, what do you think we need to do now? What are the big things that, that we need to continue doing or start building with this wave to kind of set the stage for whatever that next wave will be? I mean, the first thing to do if you have a job is start talking to your coworkers and finding that common ground, figuring out what the issues are, figuring out who's doing better than other people and why that is. Just find out what's really happening at your workplace. Talk about money, especially if you're making more than other people. Find out why that is. Find out how you can change that. Like it all really starts as much as it's hard to say that one individual can change the world. Like some have, sure, but usually it takes a lot of us um in in that situation like you just need one person to start being chatty and talking to other people they work with and trying to figure out what's going on because the more you know the more you understand what your coworkers are going through the easier it is to figure out what you need to do about it and then start doing it like of course I think everybody should try and join or organize a union but you know there's also outside of that framework like learning about to be learning how to be more self-sufficient learning about how to care for people in your community and build community and and get in touch with your neighbors and learn more about mutual aid like taking care of people is not work that ever ends and I think that especially in this country we're kind of encouraged to be very like you know fuck you I got mine very individualistic in a way that's really harmful and has been very harmful for a very long time I really think if people want to make things a little bit better for the people coming after like try and build the world you want to see later now even if it's just on your block or in your building if you start a tenants union if you get involved in a community garden like it sounds very kumbaya in a way but especially like as someone in a political tradition where everyone thinks we're just utopians like you can make things better if you just put a little elbow grease in you talk to people and you listen and you care 
Like, mm-hmm. uh, of course, I want people to read the book and to read more labor history and learn more about where we come from and who, you know, who got us here. I think that's important too. But yeah, building the future you want to see, honestly, that can start with the tiniest thing. It can start with a seed. And then for any of our listeners who are not familiar with the celebration and practice of May Day, this episode will be coming out on Monday, May 2nd. Um, So the day after, would you explain a little bit about what May Day is and also let us know how you will be celebrating May Day and (laughs) uh, if you have any like stories or uh, like fun tidbits about May Day history? So May Day, International Workers' Day, it is, well, (laughs) in the U.S., we're encouraged to celebrate Labor Day, but that is a scam that the government (laughs) is, I sound like an old, like an old conspiracy theorist, but it's real. (laughs) Literally, it's a government scam. I wrote all about it for Teen Vogue. Um, Labor Day was kind of enacted as a way to take power away from May Day, because May Day is the international workers' holiday. It's celebrated around the world. Most countries celebrate May Day, just not here officially, because, um, yeah, it just recognizes the workers and our history and the labor movement. It, there's like very specific history about how it came about. It's sort of, I don't want to, to, to jumble it. You should, you should read more about it because it's interesting, but basically like May Day started being celebrated as a tribute to the Haymarket martyrs, uh, anarchist organizers in Chicago who were murdered by the state basically because they were suspected of potentially being involved in a crime that they were not involved in is really just a, a state repression kind of thing. Like how dare you try to organize workers and talk about anarchism. Uh, <laughs> but all that, all that to say, yeah, there's a very intense history there, but essentially like it's, it's a day that recognizes the radical tradition and the people's history and the fight that we're still engaged in. It's a day to rest and laugh and play and protest and maybe end up running from the cops like I seem to have ended up doing for most of the past few <laughs> days in New York. Um, I And it's, you know, it's a day for rest, but I, since I'm in the middle of promoting this book, ironically, it's a radical labor history book, I'm probably going to have to spend most of the day working. Um, mm-hmm. I've got to deliver a keynote uh, talk on May 2nd at this Philly Labor History Symposium the next day so I have to write it which isn't like that's fun work that'll be fine yeah and I'll, you know, I'll wake up late or something but um, <laughs> well, I did see and I'm in Philly but a lot of cities have their own May Day celebrations and in New York I think this year will be pretty big I know the folks from the Amazon Labor Union are organizing something there's usually something in Union Square I got to speak there a couple of years ago um just it's a good day to find find the radicals find the reds find the people who are also trying to fight for a better world in the way that that you want to see it created and just go out and have a picnic or make some new friends or start talking shit about your boss i mean it's a, it's a great day to play a great day to rest and it's also a great day to start organizing <laughs> i love that i hope that all of our listeners uh who will hear this will have had a lovely may day and maybe started a little organizing and then they can pick up a copy of fight like hell from skylight books where we have a plenty of them and you can also order them online at skylightbooks.com for all of our listeners my guest today was kim kelly and you can find her on twitter and where else let us know where we can find Um, you and follow your work 
yeah i have a patreon patreon thingy that i've had for a few years that where i publish um just like tidbits and articles and all sorts of stuff if you like the stuff i do i do it on there i'm aggressively online so definitely twitter i have an instagram (laughs) kim kelly writer and i'm also a freelancer so i'm always writing and publishing new things like this book is my the longest blog i've ever written but (laughs) i'm pretty prolific and now that this thing is out i can go back to hustling so yeah i'm pretty easy to find just uh you know keep keep your eyes peeled well thanks for thanks again for joining us kim and thanks to all our listeners we hope you have enjoyed this episode and we'll see you soon thank you for listening to the skylight books podcast series please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on twitter and instagram also don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.